Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome again. I am doing another live video podcast. I did this on Friday. I'm doing it again on Monday. Just a really important topic, and I thought this was a better format to get it out there. I'm a little bit nicer dressed this time because I've been doing a lot of TV interviews today. I did one this morning with One American News. I got Newsmax coming up at 7.30 Eastern. Then I've got Laura Ingram tonight, the Ingram Angle, at 10 o'clock Eastern. That's on Fox. I'm doing Fox Business tomorrow afternoon, the countdown, to claiming countdown on Fox Business. You know, I was scheduled to be on CNN this evening at around seven, I was going to be on with Sheila Beyer, who used to be the top person at the FDIC. And uh, they had booked it, but then Sheila chickened out. She didn't want to be on the same screen as me. And I guess I don't blame her because I blame the FDIC for a lot of these problems. So she probably didn't think she could hold her own in, a, in an argument against me on air. So she declined to speak with me. And so CNN kind of pulled the plug on the whole thing. She'll probably be on. She'll just be able to BS her way through the interview without me there to uh, you know challenge her on anything. But also I did some other radio uh, interviews today. Some people want to talk to me about what I believe is the 2023 financial crisis. This is no longer the 2008 financial crisis. This is the 2023 crisis. And it's what? It's been a long time, 15 years since we had a financial crisis. I'm surprised it's taken this long for this crisis to begin, but I'm not surprised that we are having a crisis. In fact, when I recorded the podcast on Friday, I said that If they didn't come up with a rescue plan over the weekend, and I said I thought the plunge protection team would be hard at work to try to prevent everything from imploding, 
it would have looked a lot different today in the stock market. In fact, the Dow was down not even 100 points, and the NASDAQ and some indexes were actually positive on the day, although a lot of the banking stocks, the regional bank index, was clobbered by another 12%, hitting a new 52-week low. So some stocks went down a lot, but by and large, the government dodged a bullet if it was worried about a stock market crash. But it would have been a lot bigger than that because, as I said on Friday, I expected a lot more banks to fail in the coming week had the government done the right thing and allowed the Silicon Valley Bank to fail. And I mentioned on Friday that there was no way this was an isolated event, that more banks would follow. And sure enough, over the weekend, another bank, Signature Bank, also failed that is now Uh, owned by the government through the FDIC. So that makes three banks that have failed. All these banks, you know, very related to tech and crypto and things like that. But they're not unique in what they've done. There are so many other banks that are in trouble or were in trouble until this massive bailout was announced on Sunday evening, about a half hour after the futures market started to open. So really, that was their goal, right? They wanted to get this under the wire. It was, you know, the ninth hour, and they they wanted to make sure the markets got the good news that the government was going to do this big bailout. Of course, everybody is claiming that it's not a bailout. Listen to President Biden, gave a speech today, and all these minions are out there. Oh, this isn't a bailout. Nobody's getting bailed out. This isn't like 2008. You know, nobody wants to admit it's a bailout because obviously the bailouts were not popular. And so they want to distance themselves from that language. But this absolutely is a bailout. And also you got Joe Biden today saying, don't worry, the taxpayers aren't going to pay anything for this bailout. Okay, well, then where's the money going to come from? The man in the moon? Of course, the taxpayers are going to pay, but they may not pay in the form of taxes because nobody has the integrity to actually raise middle class taxes. But that doesn't mean the taxpayers are going to get away with this. They're going to pay for it. It's just that they're not going to pay for it with higher taxes. They're going to pay for it with higher prices. Now, they also might have higher costs when it comes to their checking account or you know using their bank, but that's going to pale in comparison to the explosion in the overall cost of living. The the bailout is being paid for by inflation. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, today marks the return to quantitative easing. So we are now officially in QE5, and I expect the Fed's balance sheet to go up from here. By the end of the year, it's going to be above $10 trillion. It's going to be much higher than it was when they started quantitative tightening. They started it, but they can't finish it. That's another one of the predictions that I made. I also predicted that if the Fed tried to raise rates high enough to fight inflation, before they succeeded in bringing down the inflation rate, they would bring down the economy, and that's exactly what happened. You know, it's amazing. So many people out there were debating whether or not the Fed could pull this off without even causing a recession. People were talking, would it be a hard landing or a soft landing or no landing? I mean, even a week ago, Powell was talking about how great the economy was, how strong the labor market was. 
yeah, we're going to keep on hiking rates and no problem. Well, I said, not only was everybody wrong, not only could the Fed do this and avoid a recession, a recession was inevitable. What I said, it wasn't going to be just a recession. I said the only way the Fed could succeed in attempting to bring inflation down anywhere near 2% is by creating a financial crisis. So it wasn't just that we were going to have a recession. We were going to have another financial crisis. And I also said that the financial crisis that the Fed was going to create this time would be worse than the one that it created in 2008. And that's exactly where we are. And when I did the podcast on Friday, I said, if the Fed did the right thing and just let these banks fail and let all the uninsured depositors lose their money, which is 95% of the depositors of these banks were uninsured. These are huge deposits from major corporations, very sophisticated investors, had a lot of their money in this bank, and they were going to lose it, a good, a good portion of it. Now they're not. Now, Biden is making a big deal, and the Fed is saying, well, it's not a bailout because we're not bailing out the management of the companies. They're losing their jobs. We're not bailing out the stockholders. They're getting wiped out. They're losing all their money. Yes, that's true. There's a small number of people who are not participating in this bailout, but there's a lot of people who are getting bailed out, starting with the customers of the bank. They're, they would have lost money but now they're not going to lose money. Why? Because the government is going to make up their losses. So somebody's got to pick up the tab for that. Now, a lot of people might think, well, you know, the customers, it's not their fault. Why should they lose money? Well, they made the mistake of putting their money in this bank, knowing that their deposits were not insured. I'm not talking about mom and pop who had 50,000, 100,000, even 250,000 in the bank. They, they were going to get paid anyway because they, they had the FDIC insurance. Of course, that was a mistake. There should be no FDIC insurance. That was just another bad policy of the New Deal, courtesy of FDR, because of the Depression. You had all these bank failures during the Depression. But as I mentioned on my last podcast, with all those failures, it was only about 2% of the bank deposits that got lost. That was nothing compared to what's getting lost now every year with inflation. Remember, we didn't even have any inflation back then. We had, we had deflation. But at least the, the guys down in the 30s, the congressmen that, was, that were around back then in Roosevelt, at least they had the good sense of having a limit on the coverage. Because what they thought was, you know, the average guy, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker— He's not sophisticated enough to know the good banks from the bad banks. So we just want to say, look, you know, any bank that you put a little bit of money in, don't worry. Uh, you know, it's safe. We're, the government's going to guarantee it. But for all the larger depositors, corporations, you know, more sophisticated, knowledgeable, you guys need to be the, the cops here. You need to police these banks and only put your money in the sound banks and avoid the unsound banks. And, you know, the little guys can kind of ride on your coattails, maybe if they even care. But they thought that the moral hazard wasn't going to be that bad because only a small percentage of the deposits were covered. And they thought that the, the broader non-insured deposits would make sure that the banks competed on, on, on soundness, on safety, and not just, you know, who had the highest yields. Well, 
Now, what the government has done, and I, I talked about this on the last podcast, is they have uh, removed that. And in fact, the $250,000 limit, which was in effect, went into effect in 2008. During that financial crisis, the government just unilaterally increased the deposit insurance from 100000 to 250000 Well, this financial crisis is already so much worse than that one that they've taken the 250000 and they've made it unlimited, right? Now, it doesn't matter because they've just set the precedent. I know they haven't codified it into law, but they've just set the precedent of bailing out the depositors of these two banks. And so now I'm sure that equal treatment under the law, pretty much every major depositor at every bank now assumes that their deposits are insured. So with the wave of a wand, the government just took on an extra $7 trillion in unfunded liabilities. Because I think there's about $7 trillion of bank deposits that were uninsured. So now the total number of insured bank deposits is $18 trillion. And the American taxpayer, non-taxpayer, it doesn't matter. You know, you're an American citizen. You are on the hook for this. Because let me explain what this Fed is doing. And contrary to the way it's being portrayed in the media, it is a big bailout, and it's going to cost everybody a lot of money. Again, the way the costs are going to be socialized throughout the population is through inflation. And Biden made a point in his speech this morning of telling everybody, hey, the banking system is sound. Don't worry. You don't have to rush to the bank and get your money because that's what was going to happen. I said we would have a run on the bank. Maybe not physically people running to the bank, but you know, through the Internet, electronically, the small investors or the small depositors, right? They would have left their money there because you know they're under the 250. But all the big depositors were going to yank their money out of all these small banks, and they were going to put it in the too big to fail banks because after all, they're too big to fail. So no matter what happens, the government won't let them fail. So the, the deposit insurance doesn't even come into play because if the bank can't fail, well then you know the government's got your back, which is a huge problem. But I think a lot of people would have seen this bank, and especially with the Signature Bank, a second bank going under over the same weekend, people would have been very scared, and they would have rushed to pull their money out of those banks, other banks, and the whole system would have toppled like a bunch of dominoes. And and so they decided to stave off that run by assuring everybody that there was not going to be uh, that all the deposits were going to be covered. Oh, and by the way, even before I move on to that topic, the idea that the, the shareholders and the bank executives weren't bailed out. Oh, yes, they were. Maybe they weren't bailed out for these two banks, for Silicon Valley or Signature. But many more banks were going to fail had the Federal Reserve not backstopped them. So those executives were bailed out. Because they would have lost their jobs when their banks went under, but now their banks are not going to go under because of the bailout. A lot of stockholders would have lost their money, but now they're not going to lose their money because of these bailouts. Yes, there's a couple of people that got punished, but all these other banking executives who made the same mistakes, 
who have the same over-leveraged balance sheet loaded up, and I went over this on the last podcast, mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, 10, 20, 30-year maturities with 1% to 2% yields, they all bought up. They all bid this. And so now they're all going to get bailed out. You had a couple of sacrificial lambs that went to the slaughter, but now everybody else is getting bailed out. So this is a massive bailout. But the point, again, that I was just trying to make is they wanted to stop the runs. And so they guaranteed all the bank deposits. And that led Biden, President Biden, to come out and say that, oh, the banking system is now sound. Don't worry about anything. You don't have to take your money out of the bank. You know, my administration, you know, we were Johnny on the spot. We worked real hard over the weekend uh, to, to solve this. And, you know, in fact, one of the things I thought was funny is that Biden says that, you know, we're going to find the people responsible and we're going to punish these people and hold them accountable. Well, you know, you don't have to look that far because one of them is in your administration. She's the secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. The people responsible for this mess are all the chairman and chair ladies of the Federal Reserve, starting with Alan Greenspan, right up to Powell. And, of course, a lot of other people in the government and the administration are the ones to blame. But Biden claims that what they did has made the bank deposit safe. No, as a result of these bailouts, the money that people have on deposit at banks is at greater risk than ever. In fact, it's not just the the deposits of these failed banks, but every deposit in every bank is now at risk. And the reason is because of inflation. Massive inflation is going to be created to pay for these bailouts, a return to quantitative easing. Prices are going through the roof. That means the purchasing power of bank deposits is going to fall through the floor. And so there's more incentive now than ever before to rush to the bank and withdraw your money before inflation destroys it and then buy gold, buy silver, or buy some inflation hedge. But the worst thing you can do is leave your money in the bank. Anyway, let me take a quick break and I'm going to come back and I'm going to explain to you the dynamics behind this bailout. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. So let me explain how this bailout is going to work. So what the Federal Reserve is going to do, any bank, not just you know these couple of banks, but any bank now can go to the Federal Reserve 
and swap their underwater paper for cash at face value. So let's say you were dumb enough and pretty much all these banks were dumb enough to do this. And of course, I was warning for years that nobody should buy bonds. It was a massive bubble. The bond market bubble was even bigger than the stock market bubble. Yet these banks were buying all of these bonds. And, you know, by the way, a lot of people are now being critical of Silicon Valley Bank for being dumb enough to buy long-term treasuries or mortgage-backed securities. But it's completely disingenuous for anyone in the government to be critical. It's one thing for me to criticize them. I mean, I got a right to criticize them. Remember, my bank didn't buy any of this crap, right? My bank was totally solvent. My bank could have survived a run. Every one of my customers could have asked for their money back, you know, before the government put it in the receivership. Any one of my bank's customers could have got their money back on the same day. We could have handled a 100% run because we had no loans. Uh, we had uh, no debt. Interestingly, of course, you know, when they shut down my bank, they held a big press conference to make a big deal. None of these banks that they shut down, they didn't hold any press conferences. They just shut them down. But, you know, with my bank, oh, we have to have a press conference to pretend it's insolvent, even though it's not. And then we can have the IRS there talking about money laundering and tax evasion, which has got nothing to do with this bank because it was just investigated for money laundering and tax evasion. And it was exonerated. After a two-year investigation, they found absolutely nothing. But anyway, I digress. I don't want to get back. But I noticed people putting in these comments about how I have experience, you know, with banking, banks being seized and banks being shut down you know, because of my own experience, but it's completely different. You know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. And of course, I'm not getting bailed out and neither are any of the bank customers, not that they even needed a bailout, but unfortunately they still haven't been able to retrieve their money, even though every penny of it is sitting there. But in any event, getting back to how this bailout is going to work. Oh, but before I do that, the reason that the government can't criticize Silicon Valley Bank and their judgment to buy these bonds at the peak of a bubble. The government encouraged them to do it. First of all, the Federal Reserve kept short-term interest rates at zero. So the banks couldn't earn a return on their deposits. So in order to get a return, they had to go way out on the risk curve and, and buy these long-term bonds to get any kind of yield. Now, they should have just passed, but you know they really had no choice since they don't really think about the long run, thanks to all... The, the disincentives that the government has put into the system. They just live for the here and now. And so they just bought those bonds and, and didn't worry about what might happen when interest rates would eventually rise. Maybe they just thought that they never would. They just made that assumption and, you know, they were wrong. But it's not just the Fed. The way the government accounting rules work, they encouraged banks to hold U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. One reason is because there's no haircut. So if they had bought other types of securities, private securities, they would have to take a haircut. Maybe if they had a dollar's worth of a private security, they'd have to take a 10 or 20% haircut. And it would only be qualified as 80 cents. The treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities were 100 cents, no haircut at all. And, and so the banks had that incentive to buy treasuries and mortgage-backed securities versus other assets or making loans where they would have some type of haircut on their capital. Also, they didn't have to mark this stuff to market. So it didn't matter if 
the bonds went down, as long as they qualified them as hold to maturity, which they were able to do at their own discretion, well, they don't have to market to market, which is a fraud because the market could collapse and these banks are holding huge losses, which is the case. So here's the way this, this bailout works. So let's say I'm a bank and I was dumb enough to follow the government's advice and I loaded up on a bunch of 10 to 30 year treasuries and mortgage backed securities and they're yielding 1%. And now some of my depositors want their money back because they could take it to a money market and get 4.5% or 5%. Why are they going to leave their cash there at 1%? Or maybe they just need their money. Their business is having a tough time in this recession that no one wants to acknowledge. And so people start going to the bank and they want their money. Well, the bank doesn't have it because it's tied up in these bonds. And let's say they bought the bonds at par. And now if they sold them, they'd only get 70 cents. So they're sitting on huge losses. Well, instead of failing like uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank did because they had to sell that paper into the real market and get a real price, what the bank could do is now go over to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, here are these bonds. They're only worth 70 cents, but the face value is a dollar, right? That's what they mature at in 10 years. And you could take those bonds and give them to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve will give you 100 cents on the dollar right now. You don't have to wait 10 years. You get to cash right now. But you're getting a lot more than those bonds are worth. Now you could take that cash and you can return it to your customers. So you didn't have to sell. You got the full value of the bonds. You didn't lose anything. Now, of course, eventually you're supposedly going to have to get that bond back from the Fed. But that's never going to happen. The Fed's going to sit on that bond for the next 10 years until it matures. You know, when the Fed initially did quantitative easing, QE1, Ben Bernanke went to Congress and he told Congress, oh, we're not monetizing the debt because this is all temporary. We're only buying these bonds temporarily. As soon as the emergency is over, we're just going to sell them. Now, I called out Ben Bernanke, you know, as a liar back then, back in 2009. I said, no way this is going to happen. You're not going to be able to sell these bonds. They're going to be on your balance sheet forever. And of course, they're still there, right? I was right about that. Um, and so the same thing is going to happen with this program. The banks are never going to want those bonds back because if they're forced to take them back, we'll be right back in the same, you know, financial situation that we're in right now. So the, the Fed is going to keep these bonds on its balance sheet permanently, which is a huge expansion of its balance sheet. That's quantitative easing. The Fed is buying, basically. They're saying, oh, they're not buying them. It's just a loan. They're swapping them. BS, it's the same difference. The Fed is taking them on its balance sheet and creating new money out of thin air to pay for them. Where does the Federal Reserve get the money to give the banks that show up at its window with these underwater bonds and they're going to get par? Where's that money coming from? It's being created out of thin air, right? It's inflation. And in fact, here's what's going to happen. I don't even think these banks are going to wait for customers to want their money. If I'm a bank and I've got a bunch of low yielding bonds, I got some bonds that are yielding one, one and a half percent and they're underwater. Why not take those bonds to the Fed, get a dollar's worth of cash and now deposit them back at the Fed and get you know, the four and a half or four and three quarters, whatever the interest is, earn that. I mean, I think that's what they're going to do unless there's something in there that prevents them from doing that. 
you know, when I first heard about it, I thought, well, maybe the banks will just start buying bonds into the market at 70 cents on the dollar and immediately giving them to the Fed for 100 cents on the dollar. At least they had the good sense to eliminate that because you can only swap bonds that you owned as of today. So you had to already own them before the bailout. You can't just go out and buy more and take advantage of that. I mean, at least at least they figured that what's the one moral hazard that they didn't miss. Of course, they missed all the other ones. But this is a disaster. It's going to cost the Fed a fortune. The Fed's going to lose a lot of money on this. And of course, the losses are going to be billed to the U.S. Treasury. And so Americans are going to pay for it that way. The deficits are going to skyrocket. Now, here is the question. What about inflation? I thought the Fed was committed to fighting inflation. How is it going to do that when it just launched a brand new QE program? I mean, they haven't called it QE, but basically this is what they're doing. And how are they going to raise rates from here? Remember, the reason the Fed was raising rates is that they were convinced that the markets can handle it. They didn't even think we'd have a recession, right? Everything was great. Well, now we had a financial crisis and it would have been had they not done this, had they not guaranteed all the bank accounts up to 100 percent. They've never done that. Right? They've never done that before. If Why were they so desperate? What were they afraid of, right? If the economy was really as strong as Biden and Powell think, they could have said, okay, we can handle a couple of bank failures. Oh, no. They know this whole thing is a house of cards, especially the banking sector. But not only do they know the economy is a house of cards, they have to know that they can't control inflation. They can't bring the inflation rate down. Because if Powell raises rates, and I think the next rate hike is supposed to happen next week, although now they were thinking 50 basis points. Now Goldman Sachs came out last night and says the Fed's on pause, right? They're not going to hike at all. You still have some people that think, okay, maybe they'll do 25 basis points. Nobody thinks they're going to do 50. But at this point, I don't think they're going to do anything because they're going to complicate the problem they're trying to solve because the Fed already knows that they broke the system, right? Rates are already too high where they are. They've already caused major bank failures, and many more banks would have failed but for this return to a stealth QE program, although it's not even that stealth. Why are they going to raise rates and make the problem worse? Because the more they raise rates, the more losses they are going to impose on the banks that are holding all this paper. And the more losses that they impose on the banks, the more the banks are going to come to the Fed to swap their underwater debt for cash. So that means the more the Fed hikes rates to fight inflation, the more inflation they have to create in the process. So they can't succeed. It's like the dog chasing its tail. The Fed is never going to bring inflation under control if every time it every time it tries to put out the fire, it makes the fire bigger, right? Because it has to try to put it out with gasoline. This is the predicament that I have been warning about for 12 years. This is not coming out of left field. In fact, I still see online, you know, on Twitter. By the way, my Twitter um, followers are, are starting to move. I'm getting close. I just went over 930,000 
Twitter followers. So I'm closing in on 1 million. And I think I will get there relatively soon. But I look online and there's certainly a lot of people, you know, commenting on my Twitter feed. And I still see a lot of people that are like, okay, congratulations. You know, you're a stop clock. You're right again. And you're fine. You've, you've been calling for a crash, calling for a crash call. And okay, now one has happened. So just by random chance, uh, you know, you're right again. I'm not right once every, you know, 12 years or whatever that is. I'm not the stop clock. It's everybody else who's the stop clock. It's all the people who have been saying everything is great all those years. They're the stop clocks. They're the ones that don't get it. All the people who didn't see the 2008 financial crisis, who were surprised by it, they're the stop clocks. All the people who thought that what the Fed did in the aftermath of that crisis worked. They're the stop clocks. I understood the mistakes the Fed was making leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. I knew that their mistakes were going to cause the financial crisis. When it happened, and then the Fed responded by making more of the same mistakes, I knew they were mistakes. And I knew they were simply setting the stage for an even bigger crash. It just took a long time to get here. We were able to kick the can down the road longer. But remember, I started warning about the consequences of the Fed's monetary policy mistakes. I started warning about the housing bubble in 2002. So you had another six years before I was vindicated by the market. Now, I started warning about this crisis in 2009. Now, it's taken about twice as long for the markets to start to vindicate me because the problem is a lot more than twice as big. This is a far bigger bubble. The mistakes that have been made as a consequence of bad monetary, bad fiscal policy dwarf the mistakes that were made prior to the 2008 financial crisis that resulted in that crisis. And so, More mistakes, a bigger crisis, bigger bubble, more air coming out. This is much worse. I think maybe that's why they were so, uh, you know, anxious to get out in front of this thing. Although when I was reading some of the news reports on Friday, I mean, so many uh, people were out there saying, oh, don't worry. This is not another 2008 financial crisis. This is just one bank failing, nothing to worry about. You know, of course, they said the same thing, you know, when Bear Stearns went under. I think that was the first, well, don't worry about it, it's just one company. And even before that, when it was subprime and you had some of these subprime uh, lenders going bankrupt, oh, don't worry about this. It's just the subprime market. Oh, we got that contained, right? Everybody was saying, Ben Bernanke, oh, inflation, subprime rather, it's contained. It's no problem. Every time they see the tip of an iceberg, they assume there's nothing beneath the surface. Oh, and so it's an isolated event, just like with inflation. We finally get all these bad inflation numbers in 2021. And what did everybody say? Oh, don't worry about it. It's transitory. You don't have to worry about this, right? They never worry about the early signs of a problem. They wait until it's a complete crisis. So on Friday, people saw this bank going down. And oh, it's just a one-off event. It's just this one bank. Yeah. That that one bank was just the weakest link in the chain. Yes, it had all these uninsured deposits. It was tied in with tech. And, you know, the other interesting thing, or not necessarily interesting, 
But this was like a totally woke bank. This was like a Sam Bankman Freed kind of bank. I mean, they were very left wing. Uh, they were really concerned about climate change and diversity. I mean, a lot more about the safety of their bank deposits. I mean, that was what they were really concerned about, right? That they had diversity in the workforce and they were doing whatever they can about climate change. Yeah, that really served their customers well. You know, that is part of the problem when you're so worried about all this nonsense, you know, you don't worry about the stuff that's actually important. And so the more that our businesses have their attention and resources misdirected to a bunch of woke nonsense, uh, the bigger the problem that's going to be. And that might even be one of the reasons for this big bailout, right? Because you have all these big Democratic donors, probably, that had lots of money at this bank, right? All these companies that give lots of money to the Biden uh, administration and to Democratic candidates, they, they had bank accounts, large bank accounts, you know, Silicon Valley, I mean, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, it's, you know, very, very uh, blue state, blue, blue area within the state. Um, but to have dismissed this and not to understand that th that bank and now Signature Bank, they're just microcosms for the entire industry. We had a dozen years where interest rates were practically zero or they were zero. And there was no yield. Again, look at all these mortgages year after year. How are banks making a ton of money doing mortgage refinances, giving everybody a lower and lower and lower mortgage? Now they're stuck. Banks are stuck with mortgages that pay three and a half, four percent when the current rate is seven and it was going to go to 10. It was going to go higher. What are these banks going to do with these mortgages now? Well, I know. They're going to give them to the Federal Reserve. I talked on my last podcast about the mortgage that Bank of America owns, my 30-year fixed at three and three-eighths. You know what Bank of America will probably do with that mortgage? Give it to the Federal Reserve. Why the hell do they want it? Get rid of it like a hot potato. That mortgage, and I don't, you know, let's say it was a million dollars. That's not the exact value. But let's say it's a million-dollar mortgage. It's probably worth maybe 600 grand. Maybe. Maybe that's what Bank of America could get from my mortgage. If they try to sell it or Bank of America could give me a call and say, hey, Peter, you know, how about we pay you four hundred thousand uh, dollars and, you know, just give us this six hundred grand now and we'll just tear up this mortgage. Right. That that's how desperately they, they'd want to get rid of it because it's a huge liability to them. It's a big asset to me. That's why I've got this mortgage. But now they don't have to do that. They could just take that six hundred thousand dollar piece of paper and give it to the Fed and get a hundred and get a million dollars. And now they can take that million dollars and invest it at, you know, 5%. They don't have to hold the 600 grand at, you know, three and three eighths. Or it was it was a, a million at three and three eighths. But, you know, the, the, it, they're not getting that. But the Fed is now giving all these companies, these banks, a way out of their bad decisions. But, of course, what about equal treatment under the law? Why should the banks get to do this with their underwater treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. What about all the other people? Or what about the pension funds or the insurance companies? They all made the same mistakes to the banks. What about your mom and pop who put money into a bond fund? Why are they not getting bailed out, right? Their bonds are way underwater. Why can't they take them to the Fed and get par, right? None of this is fair. And in fact, Biden almost fell off my chair when he said this, because Biden said, you know, when he's looking at the camera, talking to the American people, 
He said, we're not going to bail out the stockholders because, you know, they took a risk. And when you take a risk, you lose money. That's how capitalism works. Like, I don't want to be lectured by Joe Biden about how capitalism works because he has no clue how capitalism works. Because if capitalism was working, nobody would get a bailout. There are no bailouts in capitalism. If you put your money in a bank and that bank fails, well, you lose some or all of your money, depending on how bad the failure is. That's capitalism. There are no government bailouts. The minute you introduce a government bailout, you no longer have capitalism. And in fact, all of the blame that is going to be pointed at capitalism, again, it's going to happen, right? It happened in 2008. What did George Bush say in 2008? He said Wall Street got drunk, right? That was his big line. Wall Street got drunk. It's Wall Street's fault. They just all got drunk and did all this stupid stuff. Well, what President Bush overlooked and what I pointed out repeatedly was I agreed with the president that Wall Street was, in fact, drunk. But then I went a step further and I said, or I asked the question, but why? How'd they all get so drunk? Where'd they get all this alcohol? Well, they got it from the Federal Reserve. Alan Greenspan was the bartender, and he liquored everybody up, and as a result of that, they got drunk. They were liquored up and drunk on cheap money. How cheap? Well, 1%. Well, we got way cheaper after we had a big hangover from that when the Fed went down to zero and did QE. So it's not just Wall Street that got drunk this time. The whole country. Everybody was drunk because of the Fed's cheap money, and they were drinking it for 12 years. So much worse. And the only thing that surprises me, looking back, is that it's taken so long to get here. And the fact that it has taken so long to get here, that's one of the reasons that so many people still don't understand why we got here, or even that we're here. Or don't understand my warnings because they say, well, Peter, you've been saying this for so long. Yes, I know, because I could see it coming for a mile away. The problem isn't that I could see it early. It was that so many other people couldn't. And that was the problem. When so many other people have no idea, that's what enabled this long delay. Had more people been able to connect these dots we would have had a crisis a lot sooner. But because they didn't do it, it took longer. But because it took longer, the bubble got a lot bigger. A lot more mistakes and malinvestments were made. And then, of course, we punctuated it with the massive mistakes that were made during COVID. And now we've also got more countries leaving the dollar. If you can't read the writing on this wall, there was just over the weekend No one's talking about it because I guess it's on the back burner. But China brokered a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This is huge because the United States didn't even have a seat at this table. China got these guys together. China now is significantly more influential in the Middle East. And maybe Saudi Arabia and certainly Iran are much bigger allies of China than they are the United States. Also, India's coming into the mix. Russia's over there. 
This is big news because these countries are all going to de-dollarize at a time where we're about to flood the world with dollars. When we started QE1 in 2009, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Saudis, everybody loaded up on dollars. They absorbed all this money that we were printing. It ain't going to happen this time. We're not going to be able to export our inflation around the world. Remember 2010, 2011, it was currency wars. The dollar was starting to be so weak, none of these other currencies wanted their currency to strengthen against the dollar, and they all started debasing. That's not going to happen. There isn't going to be a currency World War II. The dollar is just going to tank. You know, gold was up $45 today. That's not that big a move, but it's a start. It was up $35 on Friday. So that's 80 bucks in two days. Now, gold stocks are up about 6% today, but all that did is recover last week's loss. So gold is up about $55 in the last six trading days, Monday of last week through Monday of this week. Gold stocks are unchanged. None of that $55 increase in the price of gold showed up in gold stocks. Normally, you would see a pretty big move in gold stocks, uh, but gold stocks tanked earlier in the week and they haven't really recovered. These things, I think, are going to explode. Because investors still haven't connected the dots, right? We still had these, you know, idiots on CNBC talking about, well, we need to see the inflation data to figure out what the Fed's going to do. You don't need to see the data. It's irrelevant what the data is. The Fed is stuck. They're between a rock and a hard place. Inflation's never coming back down. That is impossible. That's what I've been saying. High inflation is a way of life. It is the new normal it's not going back down to 2%. I mean, I don't think in my lifetime. You know, I'm going to turn 60 in less than two weeks. And I doubt I will live long enough to see even official inflation at 2%, right? Which means, you know, to get to get that, to get unofficially, if official inflation is 2%, you're at 4%. So you're going to have to get a 1% CPI to actually have 2% inflation. But I don't even think we're going to get 2% with the government's version for the rest of my life, right? It's just not going to happen. And when are people going to come to terms with this reality that the dollar is going to lose most of its purchasing power over the next 10 years? Not just some, but most. I don't think it's going to lose all of it, although that is possible. That's, you know, we could have hyperinflation and it could lose, you know, 99 plus percent of its value. But even if it loses 50 percent of its value, 60, 70 percent, that means prices are going to double or triple between now and the end of the decade. And that means if you want to avoid that loss, you got to do something. That's why I said you got money in the bank. You got to take it out. And it's not like irresponsible. I'm not trying to cause a run on the banks because it doesn't matter. Right. All the money's there, courtesy of the Fed. They'll print whatever you need. See, that is the problem. I mentioned this trade-off on the last podcast. There was two possible scenarios, and either way, you lose if you're a bank depositor. Scenario A, the government does the right thing and lets the banks fail and doesn't cover the deposits. Well, the depositors lose. They don't get back 100 cents on the dollar. Maybe they get back 50 cents on the dollar. I mean, you're not going to get back nothing. The bank's assets aren't worthless. They're worth something. They're just not worth as much as your deposits, but you get something, right? Choice B was 
everybody gets bailed out. The government prints the money. Their Fed prints the money, which is what they've done. They've, they've taken choice B. And so nobody loses. And so Joe Biden and, 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 and everybody else gets to pretend that everybody's whole and there's nothing to worry about because the government solved the problem. Well, in order to do that, they have to create a lot of inflation. And I think the real value of bank accounts is going to fall much further. So in other words, you'll get 100% of your money back, but maybe only 30% of your purchasing power. You're going to actually take a bigger haircut through inflation than you would have to failure. And so what I think people should do is, knowing that now, avoid that. Get your money out of your, the bank. I mean, yeah, you could leave the small amount of money there you need just for your expenses. But don't keep your long-term savings in a bank. There won't be anything left long-term because inflation is going to destroy the value of the money. So you want to get into something real. This $80 move, gold is now at $1,915 an ounce. It is still very cheap. I have no idea how high it's going. I think it's going a lot higher than 10000 maybe 20000 I used to have a $5,000 price target on gold back in 2010, 11, 12. We, we never made it. We only got up to 1900 People gave me a lot of crap for that. Because, hey, you said 5000 Yeah, you were wrong. And it never happened. Like, you know, a lot of people have been a lot more wrong about a lot more stuff than me. And, in fact, those people get nothing right. And I, I get a lot of stuff right. And you can point to some of the things that are wrong. But it's only on timing. I don't think I'm actually wrong on any of this stuff. It's just that I'm early on some of the stuff. But it's better than being late. Early is better than late. Because you're too late, you're out. Right? Uh, but if you're early, as long as you're patient and you don't, uh, you know, you don't give up, then you're going to uh, prevail. But what you need to do is buy gold, buy silver now. Uh, you know whether it goes to ten thousand, twenty thousand, who knows? It's it's going up. The value of your bank deposits is going down, and that's for sure, right? And so you want to avoid that loss. So you know, call up, shift gold, and you know. Buy gold and silver. Silver's still only 20 cents an ounce, approximately. It got up to 50, I mean, $20 an ounce, excuse me. It, it got up to $50 an ounce in 2011, and it was at $50 an ounce in 1980. Right here it is, 2023, and it's $20 an ounce. It is a steal. That's where you can store your purchasing power. That's real money. And the interest that you're getting on your bank deposits doesn't even come close to covering the loss from inflation. So it doesn't matter that you're not getting any interest on your gold and silver because the prices, I think, will move up a lot more than the value of the dollars moving down. As more people realize that inflation is a threat, that the Fed isn't putting out the fire, it's going to make it bigger. In fact, the Fed is not an inflation fighter. It is an inflation creator. That's all the Fed is going to be doing is generating inflation, destroying the value of the money. And so you want to get rid of it and get into gold and silver. Again, if you want to make a lot of money and if you're willing to take the risk, I think these gold and silver stocks are going to 10x, 20x, 50x, especially these junior miners. This is what I believe is going to happen. Nothing's a sure thing. There's always risk. But you got to decide in life, you know, what risk do you want to take? What risk do you want to avoid? And once you identify a risk that you think is worth taking, then how much money can you afford to lose and invest it? And, you know, I think that people are going to make crypto style killings uh, in some of these mining stocks. Again, I think the best way to play it is through a managed gold fund 
my Europe Pacific Gold Fund. I think we've got a great portfolio that Adrian Day has put together. Uh, also, you can have a separately managed account with us at Europe Pacific Asset Management in precious metal stocks. And if you want to play it safe, if you don't want to take that much risk, you still got to get out of dollars to avoid that inflation risk, which is real. And it's, you know, you're going to get hit with it if you stay in the dollar. So you got to do something to avoid that. You can still do what I'm doing with a lot of other clients with dividend paying foreign stocks, value stocks around the world, denominated foreign currencies, providing real dividends where they have pricing power, where they can raise the dividends. The worst thing that you can do is leave the money in the bank or stuffed under your mattress. You know, a lot of people are still holding cash. You know, they're thinking, well, you know, I want to wait for the Fed to actually pivot. You know, I I think this is deflation. I I don't want to be in gold. I want to be in cash or treasuries and I want to wait. It's not going to be that easy. And in fact, I think this is a gift horse for those waiters. Because as far as I'm concerned, this is the closest thing to an engraved invitation you're going to get from the Fed to buy gold. This is a pivot. It's happened. The Fed has pivoted. The Fed has returned to QE. Don't wait for them to officially acknowledge what I just said. Read between the lines and recognize what's happened. Because if they were still committed to fighting inflation, they would not have done this. They folded like a cheap suit. In fact, I had a Twitter poll just less than three weeks ago asking this exact question. I said, if higher interest rates cause a financial crisis, will the Fed pivot to prevent that? uh, Or will it hold steadfast and let the chips fall where they may and fight inflation? And about 70% of the people answered correctly because we just got the real answer from the Fed on Monday. So this is a gift horse. If you've been on the sidelines, come into the game, buy your gold and silver, get rid of your dollars, invest in foreign stocks. Uh, before it's too late, before the dollar loses a lot more of its value. The dollar dropped quite a bit today. It dropped on Friday. We're just getting started. We're still well above 100, what, 103, 104-ish on the dollar index. It's a long way down. I think this year it's going to crack 80. I think by next year it'll crack 60. I think the record low is around 70, 71. We could even do that in the fourth quarter of this year. Depends on how you know much momentum everything gets. And of course, if that's happening, the price of gold this year could hit 3000 4000 I don't know. I think it's going much higher. They're going to both move in opposite directions, dollar lower, gold higher. Anyway, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm going to take a very short break, and then I'm going to take your questions uh, immediately, or not quite immediately, but pretty soon after. I'm going to take a breath and drink a little water, but I'm going to be on Locals, and I am going to take your questions and talk a little bit more about this topic. And so if you're not currently a member of Locals, sign up, give it a try. You know, it's only five bucks a month, you know, and five bucks, you know, doesn't even buy you four bucks anymore, just based on the inflation over the last year or so. Uh, So give it a try, and, and you can listen to this. And I'm going to do more of this content, especially, you know, if I'm doing a live uh, podcast, because normally the the um, the locals people get to hear the podcast a day early because they hear them the evening I record them and everybody else gets to hear them the next day. But if I'm doing a live one, well, everyone's going to get to hear it while I'm doing this bonus content for the locals people. So they're going to get this Q&A and that's just an extra benefit for the fact that they've paid the five dollars a month to support uh, the podcast. So 
After this, join me on Locals, and if you're not currently on Locals, just sign up, and it will be up there. And even if you don't listen to the Q&A live, if you sign up later, you'll have access to it, and you can listen to it at your leisure. Bye for now.